0: Welcome to LA Survival Guide, a podcast hosted by Los Angeles working professionals discussing LA culture from a millennial perspective. Oh, and welcome and thank you for listening to another episode of the LA Survival Guide podcast. Um, my name is Tony. I'm one of your hosts and also in the studio with me today is Jay. Hi, uh, Jay.
1: Hi, it's Andre. What's going on?
0: Hey, this is Alex. So uh, we are your four regular hosts of the show. Thank you again for listening uh, and sharing with your friends. And today we are going to be interviewing Jay Esquire or attorney at law. We can't really decide which one sounds more which one sounds sexier what's i the think word? S- uh, esquire.
1: neither <laughs> sounds sexier
0: jay says
2: neither i like attorney at law because esquire seems to sound pretentious
3: exactly what would you write on a letterhead if i was writing a letter as an
0: attorney i would include esquire so just to get us started there's gonna be a lot of legal jargon and legal talk in this i'm sure lots of anecdotes about criminals Lawbreakers, just
3: know none of you know anything.
0: We've established this, but we do know that there are some things that we do that may feel very illegal that are not illegal. So, what are some of those things for you guys just to kind of get us started? I vote to not start. Okay, I'll go sometimes, sometimes it doesn't happen often because I don't get sick that often. But when you're actually sick and you call in to work, call you, in to work you to call get the day in off, sick? you call in sick. That's the phrase you're looking for. That is the that is the phrase I'm looking for. So sometimes <laughs> when you have to call in sick, that feels very illegal. <laughs>
3: and you feel like you have to prove it, like kind of add in a few extra costs when you're on yeah. the phone.
0: I'm not I, sick <laughs> enough to, to have to go to the doctor to get a doctor's note, but I don't yeah. want to get other people sick in the office.
1: One I've heard is walking into an establishment and not purchasing anything.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: definitely. Is that something that you've done?
1: I mean, all the time. Like, it feels illegal, It's, but it's not.
0: <clears throat> Especially as a minority, I feel.
1: Yeah. Or I think, for me, more so if it's a nice establishment. Like, if you walk into Ralph Lauren and you look around and you leave, you're like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like
2: I apologize. Actually, that reminds me... Uh, I think going into a coffee shop and using their internet and <laughs> not buying any drinks. Yeah. <laughs> Except Wait, in
1: Starbucks. It, that,
2: that's fine. It's that, like a drink is the it, price of admission. Yeah. That's acceptable. Yeah. But it, it feels illegal to not buy something from them for the price of the internet.
1: The yeah. same
0: goes for using the restroom at a gas station without purchasing gas. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah.
3: I think like... Petting someone's dog without getting their prior approval It (laughs) feels illegal. (laughs) You know, you like
2: you're kind of like it's very self conscious of you.
3: It's like you just like you're like trying maybe like you see this cute dog that you want to pet on the street and you like try and make eye contact with their owner or like. Do you ever acknowledge
1: the dog first and then acknowledge the owner as an afterthought? I I acknowledge the
3: dog first. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
1: But I feel bad. I feel bad,
0: Joey, when I do that. You are those people. (laughs) Well, I don't actually
2: pet the dog. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, no, I do neither. <laughs> I'm never on the street seeing a dog. It's yeah, I usually see the dog because like I, I meet the family, like I'm teaching piano lessons to their kid or something, and so I meet the family and, and I meet the dog too, and I be, I make a point to say hi to the, to the dog too. But, so I'd like
3: to just call something out though. Who are these scumbags <laughs> who have dogs that don't let you
0: pet them? You know, Me. I am that part. that. you don't person. have dogs? Come on, go, I go mean, get your own dog. Yeah, so I you know. usually out. ask
1: I, if I can pet them.
0: I just pet them. No, you should ask. That dog is—they're like the family. I you know. You wouldn't go and I pet their children without talking yeah. to them. Well, you wouldn't well, pet a dog, the children. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you shouldn't anyway. like, pet children. you pet a child, anyways? I mean, <laughs> children can be like like pets sometimes. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I from, agree. I think you I should agree. say it the other way around. Pets can be like children. No, but as
3: Tony to, coming coming from a non-pet, <laughs> non pet non child. Owner,
1: <laughs>
0: child owner. Uh, you got to feed them. You got to make sure they use the bathroom. You can make sure they don't fall over oh, every once in a while.
1: You can keep them from eating weird stuff. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. what's that in your mouth?
2: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, yeah. Can, apply,
1: can apply both to children can apply,
2: and dogs. It can. It
3: can. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they inevitably run away, Ugh. both children and dogs. <laughs> also,
0: feels illegal, but is legal in some places turning left on a one way road on red.
2: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. 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 There's a um, a place yeah. uh, that where you can turn onto the ten from over by USC. I want to say it's from Figueroa or, or or something or Grand. Grand is a one way. Yes, oh, also, Grand is a one way.
3: On on that note, like turning right on a red light, but from the second the sent like if there's if there's two right lanes. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That feels <gasps> yeah definitely. Yeah, I, My I mean,
0: hometown actually has one of these right turn onto like a, a, it's not a major, it's a highway. But there are two lanes that turn right, and they had to actually put up a sign that says that you can't turn right on red from the left lane that turns right. Yeah, I do that anyway.
1: I don't know if you guys remember this. It was right around this time I started using computers regularly, and it was a, a Windows thing, it was a Microsoft Windows thing. But it would you would do something, and all of a sudden this the screen would pop up, and it'd be like, this has performed an illegal action and now will be shut down or something. You're like, what have I done? Oh my God.
2: Are they coming for me? Yeah. Oh goodness. As a kid, I remember there was this, uh, maybe this is actually illegal, but who knows? There was this, th- these woods, the Elan woods, uh, in my neighborhood growing up. And I would go there with, uh, an elementary school friend and we would just kind of romp around and just kind of explore the woods and like walk down the river and just kind of mess around there. I guess that's probably legal.
3: Also on that is uh, in my hometown, uh, sometimes when we go for a walk with my parents, um, we'll go walk through like the local neighborhood elementary school, which is where I went to elementary school. Um, But it definitely feels a little illegal when it's like on a Saturday or something and there's nobody there, you know, there's nothing, it's not closed down or anything. Uh, It definitely feels illegal. Although I will point out in LA, I think it might be illegal to do that because there's an elementary school right by my, my house now. And it is, the gate, the fences are, like, 20 feet high. And there's no part that's accessible that's not, like, through a gate or through some, like, very, like, high... It's fortified. Yeah, it is, like, a a prison.
0: Moving into our next segment, I kind of wanted to get those in the room who are not practicing law, so everyone except for Jay, your impression of the legal system.
1: For me, it just sounds bureaucratic
0: Mm. yeah a lot of uh
2: paperwork a lot of red tape just taking a long time to get things done because you have to do all these checks and there's these processes that one has to get done before the other and
0: um just feels like it takes a long time to get things done
1: yeah a lot of ways to just kick things down the road
0: yeah I, i definitely agree with those i also would probably throw in it feels very uh archaic and ritualistic sometimes, um, mm. titles and the processes, like standing up when the judge walks in and like what you can and can't say. Like. I
1: think there's something, I don't know, I kind of like the ceremony of it because it it sort of socially signifies an important event. You know, like having that ceremony sort of makes all us all realize like, okay, honorable. this is something that, it's something important and we need to have a different behavior and a different decorum in this setting. And I think that that ritual kind of reinforces that. Yeah. kind of like it. Well, and there's
3: some punishment if you don't. Right.
1: The bailiff gonna be, come for your ass.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't have a legal background, but I, I just know from being a little bit familiar with like copyright law and the law as, as it relates to music and stuff that just people often complain about it being kind of out of touch with the times and out of right. touch with like modern technology and like the way yeah. that we make music nowadays and that the laws that are designed for technology that does not exist yet. And that yeah. it takes a long time for it to get updated to whatever we are capable of today. And that it only gets updated because people start complaining about, this is not written for today's technology.
1: And again, I wonder if, if there's something, if it's like that by design, You know, perhaps the law shouldn't have such a quick reflection on society that everything else does. you know, Maybe it should take its time to consider. And it, maybe it should take its time to say, okay, if we create this new law that will inevitably change some behavior, what will be the consequences of it?
2: That does make sense. It, you yeah. can careful, weigh, carefully weigh the consequences. You
3: know, uh, I think all of you guys have really good input on that. And all those are kind of present in the law. Uh, one thing that kind of struck me, actually, as you guys were talking, is this reflection that one of my colleagues had at a previous job, which is whenever he would get up to do a closing argument and on jury trial, he would always say this line, which is the thing you need to know about our society is that our court system is not a system of justice. It is a system of laws. The idea being that ideas of justice and, you know, uh, you know, everyone who like wants to be an attorney when they're a kid or something like that or, you know, they see it, you know. Compelling legal dramas on TV or something like that. They have these ideas of justice, like, yeah, we're gonna go get you know justice. That, yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna go take down Monsanto or you know, we're gonna go take down that uh you know the the government for doing this thing or something like that. Justice
0: in the sense of righting wrongs,
3: right? Um, but the idea of justice is very very subjective, and what's justice for you may not be justice for the other person, and. The idea also is that a lot of times in legal disputes, everyone thinks that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, you know, with some you know hesitations, there's always people who may not have like a perfect case or something like that. Let's say they're the the plaintiff; um, they've been hurt in some way, but maybe it's not a perfect case. And on the same front, if you're a defendant, if you've been accused of doing something wrong, you may have done some things right and some things wrong. But everyone's idea of justice is basically getting their wrongs righted Mm -hmm. and understanding that our system is not necessarily catered to vindicate one side or the other, but also to provide balance through the application of law.
1: I want to ask you a question, Jay, about a stereotype that maybe some of us have around the law. And the stereotype Mm -hmm. goes something like, regardless of whether they are right or wrong or guilty or not— Whoever has the biggest legal guns wins. If I'm Joe Little Guy and I'm going up against some multinational bank or some sort of high powered tech company, I will lose simply on the fact that I do not have the legal firepower to go up against this giant who can pay for an entire legal team of researchers and experts and et cetera.
3: That's right to an extent. People always kind of underestimate the necess- necessity of a, an attorney. Um, A lot of people, (laughs) I've seen this a lot in my career, where people like, you know, get this idea of what an attorney does in court. Even if they have some like very baseline idea of what what they do, they think that they can do that job, and those people always lose Um, because there there is a lot of ceremony in the way you put it, Uh, and there is a lot of decorum that you have to observe. If you don't know how to do that, you can get cut out and you can lose. Um, So to an extent, that's that's true. But if you have somebody who has a general idea of knowing what to do, um, you can get pretty far. There definitely is you definitely get more returns on the higher quality representation that you that you have. But you can't turn a turd into a golden
0: goose. Oh hmm. uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, so where did this this decision to pursue a career in practicing law When and where did it start? George W. Bush.
1: What? For For real? Really? (laughs) Yeah.
0: So when
3: I was in high school, which is when George W. Bush was president, I uh, was kind of politically minded. And I kind of like understanding that most politicians in our society had some kind of legal background or were attorneys in their previous careers. That made me want to become a politician. I saw George Bush as somebody who was like, At the time, I believed I could do a better job as a leader. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Listen, this is coming from a 14-year-old. I've changed. Okay. (laughs) I no longer... After getting to law school, I definitely shed all my political dreams. And (laughs) I I had no aspirations to be a politician at all now. But at the time when I was 14 years old, I had leadership instincts, and I was successful in class and stuff like that. So student I, body president, yeah, I was. I was student body president, and I thought it ha- I had what it took to to be a politician and to be a successful leader. So that's what made me want to get into law is because I wanted to become a politician, specifically the president of the United States.
2: And do you still want to become the president one day?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. God no. Oh my. Oh my lord, no. Well, I think at one point every kid wants to be the president of the United States. False.
2: <laughs> nope.
0: I didn't. You. You didn't. False. Oh,
1: okay.
0: So you did. Oh. One, like, <laughs> Definitely, Andre. Andre did. Like at one point. What president gave you the impression that this is what you wanted to do with your life?
1: It wasn't a specific president, but maybe it was Abraham Lincoln, and then later on it was Andrew Jackson.
3: Why? Why <laughs> Andrew Jackson? Like, was that like an anti-example for you? Well, he's usually not regarded as a positive role model these days.
1: Yes. I won't argue the merits of the correctness of the things he supported. You know, mostly he's blamed for the Trail of Tears. It would maybe give too much credit to Andrew Jackson to blame him for the Trail of Tears when he was really executing on a a sort of white cultural belief that most of his constituents had. Yeah, but he was definitely executing on it, driving it forward. Correct. I liked him, for, I think, for the same reasons that a lot of people like Elon Musk now— You know, he was very contrarian in his day. He was uh, just a crazy bastard, you know, in a way that a lot of people find Elon Musk very endearing or Steve Jobs very endearing. As a sitting president, he nearly beat a man to death once. The story is incredible, but basically there was this assassin who uh, who, who tried to assassinate him, you know, shoot him with a gun. The gun misfired. Pulled another gun on him. That gun misfired. And at this point... Jackson was a very elder statesman, and he was very sickly. He had been shot earlier in his life, hobbled over to this man with a cane, and proceeded to beat this man to death with a cane so badly to that his aides had to pull him off before he killed this man.
0: Hold up, I'm gonna have to stop you for a second. So you were inspired? <laughs> I just thought and he was wanted sorry. to become president <laughs> like, because Andrew Jackson <laughs> had to beat a would-be assassin. Somebody who was trying to kill him with his cane. Who had two guns, by the way.
1: Yeah, there's just something badass about that. Also, I had attended a a talk given by uh, a famous historian named Doris Kearns Goodwin. And she had written this very influential uh, biography about Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And I was really inspired by that.
0: I was more of a realist. You know, I grew up in the era of parents telling their children you can be anything you want to be i'm sitting in the back seat of the car like okay i hear you say that but no no i can't be anything that i want to be because it was also learning about like i don't know just this country's views on certain people groups and like hmm. being held back essentially learning about systemic racism and how it hinders people from really doing a lot of what people's parents were telling them they could. I didn't know that that's what it was and what I was thinking about at the time. But that, to me... And I also had never seen a Black president. I'd seen a lot of uh, African-American uh, senators, but like that was about as high a level in their political career that I I'd seen at the time.
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> Jay, you said you had gotten to a point where the political—you were sort of disillusioned with the political aspirations, but what made you continue in the law?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely still thought highly enough of myself when I was 22 and graduating college that I wanted to, to pursue a political career. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what it is, right? I mean, it's it's that you think so highly of yourself that you think, yeah, I could do that. I could do that better than these guys. I could like buck the system and you know, make the system conform to my will, you know, because I'm, I have that strong force of personality and I'm that smart. And
0: yeah. (laughs) So to be clear, it was not a sense of a total sense of pursuing justice or just practicing law. It was your own sense of, no, I can do this.
1: Did yeah, it, it was. Definitely, did it come from a selfish place? Did it come from an ego place? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think also, you know,
3: it's a mixed. It's always a mixed motive. So, I mean, that was like a big thing. You, I wanted, I craved that like validation that mm-hmm. that would provide. But also, I thought that I would be able to do good with it, and I'd be able to make a difference in the world.
0: So you finished the bar exam, and what was your first area of law that you practiced?
3: After finishing the bar exam, I did real estate law. The story is that I moved to LA after law school with dreams of becoming an entertainment lawyer. Then getting here and realizing that there was a massive oversupply of people who were interested in getting into entertainment law, and the (laughs) entry level attorney jobs for entertainment law were paying for like forty thousand dollars a year. (laughs) Like
1: people with, you know, the degree and had passed the bar, forty grand.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And some of those jobs also, they have this model. It's kind of unique to entertainment law. There's not many other areas of law that kind of have this model where like you have clients. It's almost like you're an agent. You're kind of a quasi agent, but you're also an attorney where you kind of have to like build your client base from the ground up.
1: Mm. Is it true that there's been like a deluge of new lawyers, newly minted lawyers in the past 10 years and that it's not as lucrative as one might think? That was definitely true right around the time I was becoming a lawyer.
3: (laughs) It's kind of one of those things where things have kind of changed kind of in flux. So right around the time of the recession and afterwards, people were going to graduate school more, including myself. They were graduating and not really finding many jobs, and uh, there wasn't much out there in terms of opportunity. Because of that, because that was very well publicized right around the time I was graduating people stopped going to law school as much. So there was actually a struggle to fill seats in some law schools in the years, like pretty much the mid-2010s. So right now, the legal market here, and I think actually across the country, is just red hot. So there's actually more jobs than lawyers are there are now. Hmm. The legal unemployment, I think, in Southern California is something crazy like 0.5% or something like that. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> the result of that is that a lot of times, like you get recruiters who are constantly contacting you, uh, like emailing you, just, just cold calling you, hitting you up on LinkedIn. I probably get five to 10 emails a day from recruiters, what? people adding me on, on LinkedIn, trying to get me to move to Florida, trying to get me to move to Texas, trying to get me to move to Wyoming, <laughs> anywhere and everywhere.
0: So for you, especially with these offers to practice law in other places that may be perceived as more affordable and may have like a pull or some sort of attraction for you, why do you choose to stay here in Southern California to practice law?
3: I stay in LA for other reasons, not relating to my like career. So I stay in LA because I have, I feel like I have purpose here on like a higher level. I feel like uh, I'm also close to my family. My family is not far away. All my family lives in California for the most part. So staying close to family. I also enjoy California. I just when I when I lived away for law school, I just found it much more relate. I found people in California to be much more relatable and much more chill than the people I was encountering in law school. That could just be because of the people in law school. <laughs> who also I like I went to a pretty reputable law school and I cannot tell you how many of these people come from like these patrician well-heeled backgrounds. It seemed like every person I would meet was the son or daughter of a doctor, another a lawyer, I or, or like a lawyer couple or something else.
1: Did you come from a background like that?
3: No, absolutely not. My my dad is a firefighter, my mom's a uh, teacher both work for the state
1: (laughs) what was it like for you being in this sphere of privilege knowing that you weren't that you weren't sort of raised in it it was very
3: hard to cope because you know i'm like a
1: white person but
3: even like not having that kind of like background and moving to a place like this where the majority of the people that i went to school with were of that background it just was harder to make friends. It was harder to relate to people. Mm. There's just certain social cues that you don't always pick up on. Mm. Um, I was actually, when I read the, uh, the book Hillbilly Elegy, um, this last, uh, about two years ago, I found it really relatable when this guy went to Yale Law School. I didn't go to Yale Law School or anything like that, but the story is that this guy grew up in a poor, kind of white trash family in, in Ohio, on the border of Kentucky. And his family is from Kentucky, And he had this really hard upbringing and, like, pretty much just got out by the skin of his teeth. And he went to Yale Law School and just could not relate to people. You know, he felt guilty leaving food on the table at the fast food restaurant. He didn't know what the difference between white and red wine was. (laughs) Now, I, 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 I knew the difference. And, like, another point about wine was, like, he didn't know what a Cabernet Sauvignon was. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't know what like the difference between a Pinot Grigio and a, a Pinot Noir was. And also at like these fancy dinners, people were talking to him about golf, you know. <laughs> it was just very just elite things. And I found that really relatable because the people I met and the people in law school, a lot of them are like that. Now, it's not to say all of them are like that. And how did that make you feel about the discipline itself? It definitely makes you a little bit jaded. Kind of turns you off. Also I was having trouble getting a job right out of law school, Mm. and it just made the whole experience really sour for me. I was graduating in a time when it was still recovering from the recession, and so jobs were recovering, and they were out there, but they weren't yet plentiful. Uh, It just made me really, really jaded about the whole practice of law. I felt like the cards were stacked against me, and like I was not set up for success. I'd actually, when I left law school, I left with $187,000 in student loan debt and yeah. no no promise of a job. Ouch. I moved back to California. I <laughs> had, had to like learn to live in Los Angeles. I never lived in LA or, or any big city in, in California. And it was tough. It was a tough time in my life. Uh, I was unemployed. Didn't have any promise of a job. The job market wasn't necessarily good. I actually I had a fellowship lined up for the period of time after I took the bar exam and In between the bar bar exam results, working at a foster youth uh, legal services agency, but I was only getting—I only had like it was like a four thousand dollars stipend, sorry, two thousand dollars stipend for essentially three months of work. (laughs) Which, even living with five people total in in an apartment, which is what I did, (laughs) and Tony was one of those people, (laughs) (laughs) paying. $700 Seven hundred dollars for rent a month. Let me tell you, if you can do that math, <laughs> that two thousand dollars is not enough to cover. It's gonna the be dr- of rent.
0: dried up real fast. So, Look, I could make. I could have made that stretch. <laughs> 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 I could have made that stretch. I would have been very grateful for that. But that's me in my situation. But yeah, like I also didn't have a hundred. Uh, how much?
3: Hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars student loan debt. Yeah, I now no. now for so it's been. Um, what how long was how long ago was that when i graduated like 6 years ago basically i actually owe more in student loan debt now and it's only now that i'm beginning to pay off my student loan debt <gasps> because of interest i mm-hmm. actually yeah, because i had an ungodly amount of interest yeah
2: um, just where, piling up just piling up so you had this $2000 for 2 months this the stipend and then what you, you apparently you survived that. I survived because you're here. Yeah, yeah, I
3: survived. I mean, I had I had I had savings that I had saved up personally. Yeah. I think I also used some of my student loans just to keep in my savings account. I probably had about eighty thousand dollars in my savings account when I moved here. Maybe maybe a little bit less than that. Maybe like six thousand dollars. But I was burning through that money pretty quickly. I had to take an unpaid internship with uh, a solo practitioner in Santa Monica. This guy, God bless him. Good guy, but he had recently hung up his own shingle and so he uh, was working for a firm and then for whatever reason just started his own practice. We worked at this building in Santa Monica that literally, the his office was 300 square feet. Oh. And I actually worked in the hall, which... <laughs> uh, for a little bit, and then he got another unpaid intern, and she worked in the hall, and then I worked in the same room as him on a different computer.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Dude, also speak of th- things that are legal that feel illegal. Unpaid internships. Yes. Yes. Gosh, so they actually are amen. illegal
3: if they're if you're doing admin admin work. Sorry, this is not legal advice. Do not take anything I'm saying as <laughs> legal advice. I'm right. Not your attorney by listening to this podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, well, he's got to say that, you Disclaimer. know. Yeah, but it has to do, if you're in school, it's got to do with your education it, for it to be a legal, unpaid internship. But if you're out of school, nope, it's got to be paid. I have a younger right. friend
1: who was uh, looking to do some internships, and he's a, he's a sophomore in college. And I'm like, are you getting paid for this internship? And he's like, oh, no, I'm like, get paid for the damn internship. Look, <laughs> Sometimes that it's,
0: it's simpler to say that, Yeah, but... I took an unpaid internship that was not related to college credit but through doing that internship or volunteering um, is how I see it at this point I was able to get into the industry and do what I enjoy doing now
1: I mean yeah I did I did a similar thing you know when I started out in marketing but it's just... It's a really sleazy shady business deal because you're you're taking advantage of young people who have no other option and they're very desperate and you know they'll do anything and you just prey upon that and a lot of times you don't even really get any experience you're just doing clerical work.
0: They look, I'm going to tell you right now that that clerical work is still it goes a long way. You're now in an environment most of the time that you want to be a part of and and be paid for and i learned so much just from going into that office i didn't feel like i was being taken advantage of i now again am doing what i love doing getting paid very well to do it and if i had not taken that internship i would have trouble getting into the door getting into this industry that's that's how i see it but that's again that's my personal experience yeah it was it, by no means was it easy because i also was working a job 2 days a week at the time it was a struggle but i look back in fondness of that time and i'm super grateful for that opportunity
3: I think uh, like having that experience is, is a real boon to be able to be a real a real person and, and relate to real people. Yeah, it
2: builds character. You get better at handling difficult situations because you you've handled it before.
3: Yeah, and having empathy for people who are in
0: those kind of circumstances. That too. Also. Yeah, yeah. So after this job in Santa Monica. Fellowship, this fellowship in Santa Monica. Unpaid, Unpaid internship. internship this volunteer work <laughs> after working in the hallway
2: and then in the same office as this guy, bring us up to where you are now.
3: Yeah, so I mean I've gone um, I've worked at a couple of different firms uh, I was at uh, basically I spent two years at uh, two other jobs since then. Kind of uh, navigated my way to where I am now. Um, like I said, the legal climate is really it's really good for attorneys right now. I got hired in a favorable legal legal cr- climate for my current job. The job that I have now is kind of the job that I expected to have when I graduated law school, uh, but it's taken a lot longer for me to get here. In what hmm. area of law is is this? I do employment law. What does that entail? Uh, mostly lawsuits surrounding people who are terminated or some kind of uh, okay, like or discrimination cases or.
0: Things like that. Labor law disputes. Yeah. Payment disputes. Got you. You also, before this, you did something else in real estate? Yeah, real estate law. Okay. Cool. I feel like I'm learning a lot. Do you have any anecdotal situations you'd (laughs) like to share? Andre, was there something that...
1: You know, Jay, you and I were (laughs) talking once, and you had told me an anecdote about an incident you had in the courtroom. With an individual who had a, a dispute about their living situation. <laughs> oh gosh, I wonder if you could. So, talk in about Los that.
3: Angeles County, uh, all the eviction cases at, at the time were handled in one courtroom. Um, as I understand, they have actually split up into like four, three, or four different courtrooms now. But at one time, like you could have all the like business evictions, like uh, commercial real estate evictions, and the residential ones in the same room, in the same courtroom. And they'd have something like 50 Matters a morning and more in the afternoon. Wow, that's and nuts. So one time I was there for one, a commercial real estate dispute case. There was a woman, <laughs> you know, she's in tough circumstances, I understand. She appeared to be in some kind of like supportive housing. And she was trying to plead her case to the judge and support. Did,
1: did she have representation?
3: No, she didn't. And a lot of people don't. Uh, it's called unlawful detainer in court. Okay. Not to, that's not to say that there's, it's not available. There's a lot of like certain legal services firms that are available for tenants. Most, most landlords obviously are represented um, because they have the means, but not no actually, uh, actually not a few uh, not a few landlords are just mom and pops who just kind of show up to court themselves. It's pretty common. But anyway, this person in particular was from a supportive housing, which means that she was probably homeless at one point and was in some kind of situation where she was getting social work and in her living situation as well. She brought a Tupperware with her into court, and she's talking to the judge about how she's got all these like cockroaches and bugs and stuff like that. Oh, no. <laughs> And she's like she's probably like 15 feet away from me and she has like this tin foil and she like it's folded up like in a flat way and she starts unfolding it and she has like a dead like dead cockroaches in her tin foil oh. and then she, the, I just like oh no no critters. B- bailiff. <laughs> like, the bailiff was kind of just sitting on his haunches, just kind of watching this unfold. <laughs> and like, the judge is like, No critters. No critters. <laughs> like, you can't have that here. You know, sometimes I think uh, some people think that they just need like the shock value of like tangible evidence. I mean, so, it shocked everyone. <laughs> people were shocked. That's true. Yeah. Did the judge rule in her favor? Do you remember? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you just. If you've got to
0: that point, I hate to say it, your chances are not good. But it also, I feel like it's interesting to note that in I guess in the, LA seems to be very much on the side of uh the renter instead of the landlords. Like there's a lot of laws that protect people who are renting spaces from other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that the case in in markets where there are a lot of renters cuz New York is you know, is actually very much the same way for renters.
3: It just tends to be in more liberal jurisdictions. A lot of cities and counties in the Bay Area and in Southern California have created a lot of like rent, rent control-adjacent laws and kind of distinguished from traditional rent control, which you might have in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, those kinds of things, where... The amount of money that you can actually increase rent is controlled or limited. A lot of cities and counties have been doing things that to make, uh, to create more protections for renters, but
0: not going so far as doing rent control. Okay. Thank God I live in a rent control apartment. (laughs) I just, (laughs) when I found that out, I was like really happy because of our friends that lived in Echo Park having to move out because their landlord raised their rent like a thousand thousand dollars yeah Yeah. that's pretty it's pretty bizarre yeah and then you go you're back in the renting market and you find that every other place that you're looking is about the same as what the landlord just raised the rent to Um, so Mm -hmm. it's pretty tough yeah I mean it's a hot button issue rent control it's great if you got it
3: I'll just say that (laughs) if you don't have it (laughs) It's kind of, uh, it makes it harder for everyone else.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So do you guys have any other questions for for Jay? Andre has no more (laughs) questions. That's great. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, this conversation with Jay, Esquire, attorney at law. Feel free to go back and check out our catalog of other episodes. If this is your first episode, thank you for listening. And we hope that you continue to listen to the show until next time.
2: The LA Survival Guide podcast is produced by Tony Rosenthal and edited by Tony Rosenthal and Alex Kapp with theme music by Alex Kapp and graphic design by Andre Orta.